Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. For this episode, we are exploring a few different questions from listeners, a sort of lightning round about Metro Phoenix's history. This episode was reported and produced by our very first intern ever, Dylan Samard. Dylan, take it away. I think that Arizonans have a particular appreciation for the fact that what is here today was not always here, especially in a city as young as Phoenix. But before Arizona became a state, before it was even part of the United States, what was the land upon which Arizona now resides like? One curious reader asked precisely this. What state in Mexico was Arizona before the United States government acquired the land in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo? To find out more, I knew I'd need to speak to an archaeologist. And if I couldn't find one in the field, I'd have to go to their other favorite place, museums. My name is Leon Natker. I am the executive director of the Mesa Historical Museum. Leon is an expert archaeologist, especially where material culture, such as pottery and paintings, are concerned. He is especially knowledgeable in the early 19th century, which is when Arizona became American territory. What state in Mexico was Arizona before the American government got the land in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo? Okay, um, what is now Arizona uh, was actually in two states. Up to the Gila River, it was part of Sonora, and we still border on Sonora State um, at the, our southern border in Arizona. But north of the Gila River, it was an area that the Mexicans called Apacheria. So it was the Apache land, and it was considered dangerous and someplace that people did not want to go to. And farther north, up above the Little Colorado, that was the land of the Moki, which we know of as the Hopi. What was the valley like in 1810 when the Mexican War of Independence began? Well, the valley was mostly, uh, it was sparsely populated. Uh, mostly it would have been Pima, Maricopa, and Yavapai uh, tribe groups. And um, they were, it was a fairly, uh, you know, innocuous agricultural a land at that point. The canals, of course, of the Hohokam had all silted up by then. Nobody was using the canals. Um, and as far as it actually being Apache land, that was kind of a, a, a misnomer on the part of the uh, Mexican government. Um, there were, of course, the Chiricahua Apache are down near Tucson and still are. And then you have the San Carlos and White Mountain Apache groups, which are farther north, up above Globe. Uh, but right here in the uh, Rio Salado, there really weren't any. <laughs> so that was, it was just like, oh, that's, you know, you go across the Gila River, that's scary. We don't want to go there. So it was very, very underpopulated, actually, compared to what it had been, you know, during the Hohokam time. For, for the sparse Spanish settlement that there was, what was life like for the people who were living there? Uh, this would have been a very tough life at that time because it wasn't until the late 19th century with American settlers that the canals were reopened and agriculture really started in a major way. So this would have been what we would, I think you would call it a hard scrabble life. 
You could have ranched uh, cattle. Uh, there was enough grazing, you know, depending on where you were in Arizona. Certainly, if you get up into the Verde Valley, there's, you know, that would have been much, much better for you than down here at the Rio Salado. But it would have been a very lonely and a very tough life because this was really kind of the no man's land. The, the real rich life was way to the west in California or over east at the Rio Grande. So here in Arizona was kind of, you were in the middle of, to, you know, to coin the phrase, it, it's, this was the middle of nowhere. There were a few Indian tribes, uh, but very little activity as far as European settlers were concerned. It was all, it was all around us. Uh, again, farther north up in Utah, there was uh, more settlement uh, and um, up in Colorado, but right, right here in the, you know, from like what we would call the Flagstaff area all the way, you know, down to here, down to the Phoenix area. This was not very settled by Europeans at all until really after the Mexican Wars. To make a life here was to do it in total vacuum. At best, you were surrounded on all sides by vacant deserts stretching past the horizon. Your only contact with other people would be your immediate family and Native Americans who were justifiably mistrustful of their new neighbors. Have you ever wondered why Camelback Mountain is called Camelback Mountain? Probably not. It looks like a camel's back after all. But if you've ever wondered who named the mountain, you wouldn't be alone. One reader poised the question, who named Camelback Mountain? And while everyone knows why the monolith was named the way it was, seemingly no one knows who named it. Even under intense professional scrutiny, the identity of whomever named the mountain seems lost to time. Okay, my name is George Hartz. I've been uh, involved in a lot of history organizations and things. For My, my wife and I co-wrote uh, two books on history in this part of Arizona. I spent uh, six years on the state board of the Arizona Historical Society and 10 years on the board of the Central, Chap Central Arizona chapter of the Arizona Historic Society, including a couple years as president. George came recommended from the Phoenix Parks and Rec Department, who implied when asked that they didn't know who named Camelback Mountain. He has been researching the local geography for decades and knew just where to look. He was able to find a clue on the site of the U.S. Board of Geographic Names. Uh, on the website, there was a link to the actual card that was submitted when this organization decided what the official name of the mountain should be. And uh, the card indicated that it was submitted on June 21st, 1939 by a professor G.E.P. Smith from the Arizona Agriculture Experiment Station. And I don't know if he was submitted because he was personally curious or was somehow affiliated officially with somebody in the state who wanted to, to get the name established, but he started the process back in 1939, and I discovered from the card that it was concluded on April 29th, 1941, when the uh, 
U.S. Board on Geographic Names officially named it Camelback Mountain. The card was interesting because it, it indicated that during the first part of the 20th century, the mountain had three different names that were in use, and that initially uh, the first uh, reference to it was from 1906 in a USGS uh, quadrant map that included that part of the state. And it was listed as camel's back, one word but with a plural, uh, camels. Uh, place names don't ever use apostrophes, so whether it meant camel apostrophe back or just camel's back in, in plural, who knows. Uh, but that was the first reference to it in any official government document from 1906. One of the other two names George is referring to is Camelback, two words, not one, in 1910 by the U.S. Reclamation Service. The other is how we refer to it today, Camelback. So do you think I'm missing anything? No, I think there's not, there's not a whole, it isn't a complicated story, uh, Camelback. Uh, you know, we... It would, be, it would be great if it had something to do with the camels that were roaming the desert during that time, but it, it, it didn't. There weren't that many camels and they weren't roaming the desert in the, in the 1870s and 80s uh, to any great extent. Let's pull on that thread. Did you say that there were camels in Arizona? Yeah, the Army, uh, in the 1850s, the Army began the process of experimenting with camels as beasts of burden in the, in the desert southwest. Uh, they had been mu using mules, and mules require a lot more water than camels, so uh, uh, the idea came to uh, import some camels and see how they worked out, and they were used quite a bit up to the start of the Civil War in various uh, army pack trains and things like that. So there you have it. We weren't able to find who first named Camelback Mountain, but we were able to find camels, more or less. And now, our journey through Arizona's history brings us to the mid-1900s, with two questions on some of Phoenix's most iconic landmarks. And just how did they get there? We spoke with Michelle Dodds. Phoenix's historic preservation officer. What would you say is the most iconic building in the Phoenix skyline? Well, I'd have to go with Hotel Westward Ho. I think it has a really unique silhouette that's unusual and stands out from any other uh, buildings in the downtown area. Unique silhouette is putting it mildly. The iconic building is located at the intersection of Fillmore Street and Central Avenue, and it's crowned with a bright red antenna taller than the main structure itself. To many, it's an architectural tribute to a time only a few living Americans have seen. A time when bringing television to homes around the country justified building a nearly 300-foot antenna atop the most desirable hotel in the state. The antenna is often confused with that shown in the first scene of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. While Psycho does use the Phoenix skyline, the antenna shown was actually mounted atop the nearby Herd building, Phoenix's first skyscraper at eight stories, and former home of the Arizona Republic. 
The herd building antenna is long gone, but it just goes to show how much radio meant in the early to mid 20th century. Um, can we go into the history a bit of the Westward Ho building? Sure, it was constructed in uh, 1928. It was designed by the LA architectural firm of Fisher, Lake and Traver. And it's the Spanish colonial revival style. Um, at the time it was constructed, it was the second tallest building west of the Mississippi. Uh, the tallest building being uh, in California. And it was the first in the city to um, use refrigeration instead of evaporative cooling for a multi-story building. You know, you can't miss the tower. The tower was added in 1949, and it's uh, about 240 feet in height, and the building itself is, you know, about 200 uh, feet tall. And then the antennas, if you count that in, that's another 40 feet. So it makes it a very tall building. It was the first uh, luxury hotel really built in Phoenix, and it was really designed to attract you know, business people and vacationers who wanted to spend time here. For our final question, Michelle Dodds walks us through the history of one of Phoenix's most baffling roadways. Phoenicians take pride in having a well-planned city of parallel and perpendicular streets and roads, but one quick glance at a map reveals a striking exception. Of course, I'm talking about Grand Avenue. What's sort of the history for that design choice, having it go diagonal as opposed to vertical and horizontal like most of the other roads in Phoenix? Well, so in the 1880s when uh you know, Phoenix was just an original town site and, and there was a, that whole road was really an old wagon road that went to Wickenburg and people would go there to where their mines were located, like the Vulture Mine. And so it was a dirt road initially out of diagonal to go from the original town site out to Wickenburg. But uh, later on, it was developed that the um, Arizona Improvement Company that was kind of founded by W.J. Murphy, uh, you know, the road starts at what we call Five Points, where Van Buren and 7th Avenue intersect with Grand Avenue. And uh, that improvement was completed in 1888. Uh, 18 miles were completed. You know, there was a um, streetcar um, added initially. It was mule uh, drawn in 1890 and then later on electrified in 1909. Uh, but as and the fairgrounds came to be at the site, it was moved to the site at McDowell and 19th Avenue. And so people used to actually uh, take the, the streetcar to go to the fair. But as fewer people um, rode the streetcar, it eventually shut down in 1934 at that location. And so, you know, the road transitioned over time uh, to, as people would come in from Los Angeles, they would enter the city uh, through Grand Avenue. And there were, initially it started out lots of tourist camps. People would come in there and go to locations with services.
So Dylan, as our intern, uh, you're fairly new here. Where did you come from? I'm a Seattle native myself. So what surprised you most diving into Phoenix history coming from Seattle? Seattle has a very interesting history in that at one point there was a gold rush in Alaska and then some very shrewd people called the Nordstrom's built a department store and then we kind of built the city off of it and a few people moved there for software in more recent history. Seattle's history, it sounds like, is a handful of people a long time ago. And in Arizona, it's different, right? Absolutely. It, I mean, it starts with a trickle. A, a few brave souls willing to come into an area that other people had quite literally blocked off on the map and said, do not go here. And they came to this area, and there wasn't much drinking water, and there wasn't much arable land, and they built a city out of seemingly nothing with nothing other than the sweat upon their brow and the calluses of their hands. I think that's part of what we love about living here, is that we come from a tenacious people. All right, well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to Valley 101 from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Don't forget to tell a friend about us and submit your questions to us at valley101.azcentral.com. We're also on Twitter at valley101pod. All right, see you next week.